0: Season 6 of Let's Talk About Sex is proudly presented by Audio Technica, who are a huge supporter of Australian creators and whose equipment is a big reason why the show sounds great. Each episode this season, we're giving away a pair of ATH-SQ1TW wireless earbuds to a listener. Head to com/win to enter. In the course of making this podcast over the last six years, I've come across some pretty secretive groups. But in many ways, this fourth-way school became the most secretive I've looked into yet. Many members didn't know each other's jobs, marital status, or even surnames. They didn't see each other outside of what they referred to as the work. They didn't know the classes they were going to each week had anything to do with the teachings of Russian philosophers. And they didn't tell anyone outside what it was they were attending. It seduced educated, affluent New Yorkers who recruited others according to strict guidelines. Many would lose decades, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, and untold hours of physical labour to the organisation they only knew as school. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele, and thank you for joining me again for Season 6. This very first episode is a listener suggestion, and my researcher Anna and I certainly went down a few rabbit holes putting it together. Before we get into the episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of sexual coercion and child abuse. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Alexander Francis Horn was born on the 14th of August 1929 to 22-year-old Laura Delallo and 45-year-old Maurice Horn in Chicago's Mount Sinai Hospital. The earliest media mention of Alex is in a 1939 Chicago Tribune article, which writes up the five-year-old raising the alarm about a fire at his South Homan Avenue residence. The report says that Alexander's mother lit a match that set the bedclothes on fire while she was in the bathroom, and the child's cries woke the rest of the household, who extinguished the fire after it caused some $200 worth of damage. The description of the living arrangements suggests a number of people rooming together in shared flats and mentions Alexander's mother as Mrs. Maurice C. Horn, wife of an electrical salesman, although the two weren't actually married until 1939. Alex's father, Maurice, passed away from coronary thrombosis that same year, when his son was just 10 years old. Cook County census records show that by the following year, Alexander was living at Chicago's Marks Nathan Jewish Orphan Home. A former friend wrote that Alex had ended up in the orphanage after his father passed away, and I couldn't find out what happened to his mother. But the name Lois and not Laura was listed as Maurice's wife on his death certificate, which could just be a mistake. This friend knew Alexander from college, with the two attending the University of Chicago together. He claims to have told Alex all he knew during this time about the teachings of Gurdjieff, who you might recall from the last episode of Season 5 on the Colorado ultra-marathon running group Divine Madness. The Russian-born philosopher and mystic taught a method of achieving higher consciousness that he called the work, and before long, Alex Horn was hooked on the teachings. The former friend wrote, however, that followers should, quote, please try to understand that almost everything Alex taught was nothing like what was taught by Gurdjieff. An early student of Alex around this period was a man named Robert Burton, who soon left to form his own group called Fellowship of Friends. If you've come across that name before, it might be in relation to stories surfacing over the last year or so about the organization's infiltration of Google. Tracing a line back to Gurdjieff himself was considered by many as the only acceptable route to becoming a credible teacher of his work. There are various perspectives on whether Gurdjieff's teachings in and of themselves are problematic in the first place, and I won't get into the detail of those discussions here. But at some point in the 1960s, Alex travelled to the UK and met John G. Bennett, a British academic who had studied under Gurdjieff and P. D. Uspensky. Uspensky was another Russian philosopher who had known Gurdjieff and had expanded on his earlier ideas through the concept of the fourth way. Gurdjieff spoke about the three different ways of self development that of the fakir, who focuses on the physical body, of the monk, who focuses on the emotions. And of the yogi who focuses on the mind. He suggested a fourth way of learning to live in harmony with all of these areas, whilst not needing to separate from society. This appealed to Ospensky and highly influenced his own work, though he felt much more detached from Gurdjieff's later teachings. In the UK, Alex also met Anne Burridge, who was 13 years his junior and had been studying under John Bennett. Though this gave her a direct lineage to Gurdjieff's teachings, In an article for the Gurdjieff Journal in 2002, the author writes, Three years or not, her training can at best only have been preparatory, as no deep understanding can be assimilated in such a short time. Vanity and self-love are simply too strong. Apparently, John Bennett warned Anne against Alex, but by December 1968 the two were wed in Sonoma, California. Alex was 39 and Anne was 26. While the wedding reportedly took place in 1968, some of the timelines are unclear here, but it seems that Anne must have accompanied Alex back to America earlier than this date, as the two had five children together, but were separated around the start of the next decade. During their relationship, they ran retreats at a place they called Red Mountain Ranch in the Mayakamas Mountain Range in California, about an hour's drive from the Napa Valley. They were able to upgrade from a farmhouse they'd been using on Sonoma Mountain Road when followers pulled some money for the purchase, and the large group meetings no longer had to take place outdoors. When Dave Archer first attended an earlier outdoor meeting, he wrote of the initiation, When we arrived, all newcomers were instructed by the first group members to strip naked, then handed paper signs to wear lettered Special Asshole. Each sign was the size of a bumper sticker and hung on our chests from strings around our necks. Dave ended up giving all of his weekend hours to work at the ranch and on himself, and while the work was hard, there was a lot of drinking and partying to top it off too. Gerald Greer, a former overseer of the ranch, told Jack Brooks at the San Francisco Progress of a memory of one night at the property. Alex assembled the group and informed them that he wanted to buy a Trans-Pacific racing boat, the biggest available. It was birthed in Hawaii. I watched as people pledged $150,000 in savings and home mortgages, He raised the money in a matter of minutes. After he bought the boat, he found that the hull was defective, so he abandoned the project. Gerald also had memories of the men in the group being made to fight each other, with no medical treatment allowed for even the most serious of injuries. Dave Archer wrote, The violent confrontation quotient in the group far outdid Synanon. Those who left and ceased doing the work, Alex told the group, would die like a dog. Dave Archer described his impressions of Alex when he first came across the man. Alex Horn was mysterious and brilliant in every way. He even looked brilliant, with an Einstein forehead surrounded by dark, thick hair, brushed straight back. Hairdresser to the stars Antonio Morocco, who calls himself the Hair Shaman, wrote about a visit to what he refers to as Alex's hilltop retreat centre sometime during this period. He describes Alex as a large, charismatic man with an almost theatrical nature – He seemed totally in control of himself and extremely self-assured. He appeared to be open and friendly and intimidating at the same time. This was a meeting with a man Antonio knew as the Master, and he was ready to find what he thought he had been searching for. He was under the impression that Alex had been a student of Gurdjieff himself. Alex informed the visiting group that he had a vision they would all be a part of on the Sonoma property, and assured them that he had found the meaning of existence. He made all kinds of promises, including showing us the fountain of youth. He bragged about how he had travelled the world, and how he had met remarkable men who showed him esoteric secrets that had transformed him into a conscious man. Antonio describes how Alex could switch between charm and intimidation in a second, throwing his audience off balance. He could spot someone's weakness and press on it in the name of some esoteric principle or another. In spite of having a few doubts, the hairdresser returned for a second weekend visit. The group was put to work in vineyards on the property, and by transforming grapes into wine they were supposedly doing the outer work that corresponded to their own inner transformations, which were the real work. Something I found really interesting about Antonio's description of this process was how he managed to portray this back-breaking physical labour as inspirational. I sometimes wonder at the hours of labour that those in cultic groups are often asked to contribute, and I found Antonio's relating of his experiences compelling as to why this might not be an instant deal-breaker. Here's a passage from his blog entry. The sun was blistering and the soil was rock-hard, but we worked as if we were possessed. We amazed ourselves at how much we could lift, how long we could endure, and what we could accomplish. It was unlike anything we had experienced before. We felt superhuman. Alex oversaw the work and spurred us on to lift heavier and heavier rocks and to work harder and harder. The energy was contagious, and we transcended ourselves in a way. Alex and his wife, Anne Burridge, kept on telling us that we could do the impossible and that we could do it easily. We couldn't believe what was happening. It was otherworldly. Antonio also recounts how the group got no sleep at all. It was work, listen to Alex, then work some more. And while it was all exhilarating, he started to see some red flags. Alex spoke of impending social collapse and setting up a community in the Sierra Nevada mountains to survive the coming catastrophe. For the privilege of their labor at these weekend retreats, attendees were to pay $100 each and were offered no receipt. Quote, Even more alarming, he told us that if we were prepared to hand over all our worldly possessions to him personally, we would be fast-tracked for development. The hairdresser started to wonder why the truly conscious couple should need all of this money. When Antonio questioned Alex about why he had control over community contributions and made all of the decisions, Alex told the group that Antonio, quote, was clearly suffering from a lack of consciousness and that he, as the only truly conscious one among us, clearly had the right to do as he pleased. Antonio picked up all of his belongings and left, relieved at the bullet he had almost certainly dodged, and hitchhiked his way back to San Francisco. Apparently, he later heard from Anne's former teacher, John Bennett, that Alex Horn was what Gurdjieff would have called a Hasnamus. In describing this term, Uspensky writes that a Hasnamus never hesitates to sacrifice people or to create an enormous amount of suffering just for his own personal ambitions. Sharon Gantz was born on the 29th of July, 1932, in New York City. She became an actress, mostly working in theatre, and won an Obie Award in 1966 for her performance in a production of Soon Jack November. Sharon married Ezra Kulko in 1959, and the couple had two children before separating in 1972. Her most recognisable role was that same year as Valencia Merble Pilgrim in George Roy Hill's feature film adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five. Again, the timelines are slightly unclear, but it seems that sometime prior to this, Sharon Gans encountered Alex Horn. There are various stories of Alex sleeping with most of the women who joined his teachings at the ranch, with former overseer Gerald Greer recounting rampant venereal disease, which Alex passed on to Anne. He also recounted one particularly disturbing story to reporter Jack Brooks, quote, Alex had to prove to the group that his word was law. He had to illustrate that growth, by his concepts, meant a total destruction of self. To that end, he made a member of the group commit incest with his own daughter. It utterly destroyed them and their family. This was the breaking point for Gerald, quote, I couldn't take it anymore and left. By 1969, Anne had left her husband, and by 1972, Sharon had departed New York to join Alex in San Francisco. Before you assume that Anne was one of many under the spell of Alex, while it does sound like their divorce was destructive, I've read testimonies of people who were involved with the breakaway group she continued to run in the Sonoma Hills. She remarried and became Anne Huss after their separation, and the stories of what is usually referred to as simply the group sound distressing. Apparently, she moved on from Gurdjieff's teachings to something claiming to be part of Sabud, an interfaith spiritual movement originating in Indonesia. One former follower who stayed with Anne for decades wrote on a cult education institute forum thread: "I deal daily with my grandchildren regarding the group and how it affected their life and mine, but it is part of my life, and I have to deal with those decisions." Meanwhile, Alex and Sharon combine forces to become a formidable pair and when they married, Sharon double-barrelled her surname to Gans Horn. Sharon contributed her passion for acting to Alex's take on fourth-way teachings, which reminded me somewhat of Ken Dyer's and Jan Hamilton from Australia's Kenja Communications, which you might recall from season one of the podcast. Together, Alex and Sharon formed an organisation they originally called Everyman Inc., though neither of their names was listed on the 1973 Articles of Incorporation. It later became known as the Theatre of All Possibilities. Michael Taylor and Bernard Viner reported for the San Francisco Chronicle that the incorporation articles provided the primary purpose of every man as, quote, "...a theatre for the performance of live stage productions and to initiate, sponsor, promote and carry out plans, policies and activities that will tend to further the prosperity and development of this theatre and the theatrical arts." A former student told Jack Brooks for the San Francisco Progress, Horn uses a mixture of Gurdjieff, Vuspensky, Sufism, Judaism, Dante, Orwell, Captain Marvel, and anything else that suits his purposes of gaining mental and physical control over the students. Everyman's first production was a a four-and-a-half-hour play written by Alex, starring Alex and Sharon, and listing as its directors and producers both Sharon and Alex. It was titled The Fantastic Arising of Padraig Clancy Muldoon. San Francisco Examiner critic Gene Miller's review of it at the time began with, In more than ten years of reporting on the local theatre scene, I remember no more punishing experience, and concluded with, Bored to the point of total exhaustion, my attention span completely destroyed, I escaped after Act Two ended, nearly three hours after the curtain rose. The playbill for The Fantastic Arising of Padraig Clancy Muldoon starts with a statement from the author that includes the following. For a theatre, if it is to be real, must serve the needs of a people, not some people, but all the people. It must have a whole and sustained vision of life, all of life, from the filth to the stars. Rarely has there been a theatre that includes all of that, a theatre of all possibilities, a theatre for every man. A theatre that reconciles the future with the past, so that we can stand on the only certainty that we have, the present now. Right at the end of the playbill, before some ads for a local Kentucky Fried Chicken, a funeral service, some quality carpets at budget prices, and other local businesses, is a note that says, please read this. Aside from asking the audience to spread the word about the play, it says... If you enjoyed our performance, if you find it in happy spirit, and perhaps even an inspiration, we would like you to be part of our family. It is the family of every man. We hope it will be around for a long, long time, because every man is an idea that is infinite. And please do remember this, Padraig Clancy Muldoon is arising, and so are you, and so are your friends, and so is the whole wide world. The theatre was originally located in the Mission District of San Francisco and became known for its pushy ticket sellers touting dinner and a show to passers-by in the vicinity. Former members told the San Francisco Chronicle that if they didn't sell enough tickets to a show, they'd face harsh reprimands and sometimes even physical punishment, such as being slapped or punched in the face. They said that they were told to sell more tickets than there were seats, as it seems like a regular occurrence that people might have bought a ticket just to get the seller off their back, with no intention of actually coming along. Prospective members might be recruited from the audience, with promising attendees asked to stay back to hear about how they could sign up for a life-changing experience. The fee seemed to stay in line with Alex's Red Mountain Ranch days, at least for the first meeting, $100 in cash. Then it would be $200 a month to keep attending, which is over $1,400 Australian a month in today's money. Kathleen Mandis attended classes for around nine months between 1975 and 1976, and based on her estimates of attendance, The Chronicle reporters calculated that the theatre was bringing in at least half a million dollars a year from its classes and ticket sales as a low estimate. In 1976, the Mission District Theatre was destroyed by a fire and the company moved to 150 Golden Gate Avenue in the Tenderloin. There they embarked on a massive renovation project, which was reportedly mostly undertaken by volunteer labour. Meanwhile, by March 1977, Alex and Sharon were residing in Pacific Heights, in an 11-room house near Lafayette Park. Jack Brooks reported for the San Francisco Progress that if a partner of a married member of the theatre troupe left the organisation – the remaining member was directed to divorce them and remarry. As to why this might be important, Dave Archer mentioned from his earlier experiences, after he and his lover were made to try to beat the queerness out of each other, quote, I remember something about true inner work being possible only when a man and a woman work together because of the physical, emotional, and intellectual polarities. Jack Brooks also reported that at one point Sharon Gans Horn directed members to get pregnant within 30 days. Kathleen Mandis was pregnant when she left the group, and told the journalist that her husband Mark remained and divorced her, then showed up with another member on her doorstep when the baby was born, calling her an unfit mother and demanding that she hand the infant over. She also said that with the hours members dedicated to the group on top of their regular jobs, there was no time to properly care for children. And there were reports of child neglect at an informal childcare centre associated with the organisation. On this note, a couple of posts recorded on the Cult Education Institute forums include the following. I spent much of my childhood sleeping on the floor in hallways within their 24th and Mission Street theatre in San Francisco. I remember not having enough food or clean clothes because the theatre expected so much from its members, which included my parents, through work and money. And my parents were both members of the theatre of all possibilities. I spent much of my childhood in the hell known as The School – Sharon Gans, Alex Horn and Robert Klein influenced my parents who beat me. I was beaten on a daily basis, locked in closets, emotionally abused and told I was worthless. I had to help sell tickets for their plays. I had no childhood because of these people. Jack Brooks wasn't used to reporting on cultic organisations when he came across this story for the San Francisco Progress. He was the newspaper's theatre critic and a reviewer on the radio station KGO. In 1978, he'd reviewed a performance of The Magician written by Alex Horn and directed by Sharon Ganshorn, who also starred in it, and found it to be not particularly good. But he hadn't thought much about the theatre of all possibilities since. Then, some months later, he was compelled to look more deeply into what was really going on at the theatre group after a disturbing call came into KGO about the organisation. Appealing for further information, the critic ended up with a number of tape recordings of interviews with former members to whom he promised anonymity. Just before Christmas, he released the first in a series of articles with the newspaper recounting some of their concerning experiences. The stories included those around fees and ticket-selling expectations, as well as quote, teachers allegedly issue directives concerning marriage and childbirth, and those who do not marry or produce a child within the given time limit are ordered out of the movement, and quote, unquestioning loyalty to the teachers and total dependence on their leadership allegedly is fostered by psychological humiliation and other brainwashing techniques. Former members also spoke of commune-type ranches associated with the theatre, and referred to the group as a family. Former member Dr Lee Sanella told the reporter that some people could speak of positive experiences under the leadership of Alex Horne, but that, quote, "...people who were basically nobodies didn't pose a threat to Horne. His treatment of them was, therefore, nonviolent and benevolent. Those people gained much from the experience." It was the stronger ones horn needed to debase and destroy. Jack Brooks couldn't find many people with good things to say through his appeals, though he explicitly sought stories of all kinds. But this quote did make me think of something I come across often, which is people who come to the defence of someone accused of abusive behaviours and say that the accused never did them any harm. I'm never sure why they think escaping harm means their stories have any bearing or that they are anything but fortunate when there are multiple corroborated stories out there of a different experience. The ophthalmologist Dr. Lee Sinella also told Jack Brooks, Some of your witnesses said that they never saw any violence towards women. I saw plenty. Horn hates women. His sexual use of them was a punishment, not a reward. I saw him strike one woman so hard she hit a concrete floor and bloodied her head. Dave Archer, who'd been involved with Alex in his earlier days and lived in fear of the group finding out that he was homosexual, wrote, Alex came off fundamentalist concerning the proper roles for men and women. Women did women's work, men did men's, period. Jack Brooks invited colleagues from The Examiner and The Chronicle to KGO to participate in his investigation and hear witnesses for his reports to make sure there would be comprehensive media coverage of the serious story he'd been working on. His first article for The Progress came out on the 22nd of December 1978 and was followed the next day by an article in The Chronicle, which I've previously quoted from. It was little over a month after the Jonestown Massacre, and cults were big in the public consciousness as a result. In the lead-up to publishing his 22 December article, Jack Brooks tried to get a representative of the theatre to speak with him and give the organization's response to the various allegations. While he couldn't get an official response, an actor told him that the Horns were mere employees and that the theatre could function fine without them. But instead, the Theatre of All Possibilities closed up shop, and Alex Horn and Sharon Ganshorn disappeared. Dr. Lee Sanella was a practising ophthalmologist, but also a licensed psychologist, and heard from a mutual dentist friend how terrified Alex was when the story broke. He explained to Jack Brooks that the dentist said he'd never seen anyone so scared and that in his view, Horn and others of his type live in a constant state of paranoia, real and imagined persecution haunts them. Kathleen Mandis told the Progress Reporter that the Horn's disappearance didn't matter. She said, This is a pattern. As soon as there is any pressure, the Horn's split and the group goes underground. They're meeting somewhere. She was right. The Horns first moved to a ranch they owned in Montana known as Falls Creek, and then headed back to Sharon's home state of New York around 1980. Dave Archer wrote about the group's early days around Sonoma. From the beginning, cameras were banned, until nearly a decade later, when Alex Horn got a write-up in the San Francisco Chronicle, the group was essentially invisible. After their move away from San Francisco, the Horns worked hard to become invisible again. There was no public-facing theatre organisation, and over the years it was referred to amongst other things as Odyssey Study Group, or just as The Work or School. Associated names over the years included Good Omen, Our Friend, Negative Emotions, Self-Remembering, Hudson Valley Artists Foundation, Fountain Ridge, New York Playwrights Association, and Second Education. There are many more too, most of them unofficial and under all of them, they continued doing what they referred to as the work. At first, they met in members' houses, some of whom had travelled with them from San Francisco. Then they rented a space for meetings in Manhattan. Inner Circle member Robert Klein started a satellite group in Boston, Massachusetts, and a second New York group was created in 1986. Recruiting efforts became more intense as the groups multiplied. Retreats continued monthly at the Falls Creek Ranch in Montana. In the late 1980s, something quite unexpected happened. According to a write-up by cult expert Rick Ross, Alex's problematic behaviours were no longer tolerated by members, and he was ousted from his leadership role. He remained a huge beneficiary of the group in terms of providing for his lifestyle, and he remained married to Sharon. But from that point onwards, he only led smaller discussion groups and stayed away from the main workings of the larger operation, at least visibly. Sharon was well-versed in how to oversee these effectively, however, and though the physical violence within the organisation seems to have ceased, many other troubling aspects continued. From 1989, group members used a house in Mayopac, New York, for monthly retreats. Then after neighbours started paying too much attention to the gatherings there, members pulled funds to buy a new house in Pauling, New York, in 1998. This was the property known as Fountain Ridge and also as the Hudson Valley Artists Foundation. Montana retreats happened annually, and extra visits to the various properties might form part of the work that included physical labour, constructing new buildings or making improvements to Sharon's and higher-level teachers' residences. Former member Don Raskopf told the New York Post for an article in 2019, we would pretty much work around the clock the whole weekend for 48 hours and I was probably working 100 hours a week. He lived at the Pauling property with his wife and children to supervise improvements in the late 90s and said, After about six months of that, I learned I had a psychotic break just from the stress. The property was sold for $1.4 million in 2004. Of Sharon Gans, Don said, She's a multi-millionaire. It comes from profit on flipping real estate built by students and from fees. Annabelle Sosa and Ebony Bowden reported for the New York Post article that Sharon bought a Mexico City villa in 2004 for $310,000, then sold it for more than double the price four years later to a student, for $754,000. They also found public records of tax filings showing that Robert Klein, who ran the Boston Group, had transferred ownership of a three-bedroom condo in the West Village to Sharon in 2006. Four years later, she sold that for $3.1 million. At the time of the article, Sharon Gans was living in a Manhattan Plaza hotel apartment bought for $8.5 million. In the concluding sentences of their article, the New York Post reporters wrote, Reached several times by phone, Gans said she'd never heard of Odyssey Study Group. Spencer Schneider was 29 years old in 1989 and a successful young lawyer in New York City. He was working 60-hour weeks and feeling increasingly lonely as he watched longtime friends get married and start having families of their own. When a well-educated and well-spoken acquaintance invited him to come along to check out an esoteric school that he said was the most important thing in his life, Spencer told him he thought it sounded like a cult. But in the end, with assurances that it wasn't a cult at all, Spencer decided that there was no harm in finding out more. He would end up spending the next 23 years of his life dedicated to the teachings of Sharon Gans Horn. Spencer wrote about his experiences in a 2019 article for the East Hampton Star magazine, and in 2022 published a memoir called Manhattan Cult Story, both of which are linked in the show notes if you're interested in reading more. At the time Spencer first attended, new students undertook a free one-month experiment before they would have to begin paying $300 per month for the classes. School was two nights a week and held in a loft space that seemed perfectly nondescript. The other attendees were in their 20s and 30s, and they all appeared well-dressed and otherwise unremarkable. It didn't seem like a cult at all. The first thing the newcomers were told was that school had to be totally secret from any outsiders. They could tell nobody about attending, or that it even existed. It had to remain invisible. They could not maintain social contact with their fellow classmates outside of the school setting, so there was no swapping of phone numbers with what they would come to know as their essence friends. Spencer describes in his book how this concept was explained to him. Essence is the deepest part of a being, and friendships connected by essence are like no others. They are profound, interconnected, and the dearest relations one can have. Essence friendships are based entirely on helping others achieve their aims of consciousness, whereas life friendships tend to be superficial and based upon enabling each other's weaknesses. The classes two evenings a week ran from 7pm until midnight, sometimes later, and then required an hour of silence after their conclusion. They always started with some form of light exercise before moving into discussion led by those who had reached the level of teacher. They might talk about books they'd been reading, which were often Gurdjieff or Ouspensky, but could also be something such as The Odyssey. Sharon Gans was at Spence's first meeting, and he described her for his East Hampton Star magazine article like this. Her hair, piled high and bright orange-red, framed a pale face. She had a hawk-like nose and penetrating turquoise eyes. Wearing a floor-length, low-cut dress with gaudy jewellery and makeup, she looked like a character from a John Waters movie. Soon after his first attendance, Spencer received a phone call from a man who he came to understand was to be his sustainer. For the next 18 months, this man would call him every day and listen to all of his problems, while he never told Spencer much about himself at all. Members were always meant to have an aim that they were working towards, and if it included something like building a new skill that could be shown to the class, then that was encouraged. While that sounds nice in theory, here's a section of an account from another former member from a forum post. Finally, after being screamed at for showing off when I brought the results of two years of work, learning a new musical instrument and performing in public, which is nerve-wracking for me, I began not making my aims. But I certainly wasn't going to admit to that and get blown up in class as I saw happening to others. Hell to the no. I reported excellent progress with appropriate intervals to my partners. I reported making my aims on aim night. No one ever doubted a micron of what I said. The highly evolved detected not an iota of a lie. Initially, Spencer found a lot to like about the group. There were interesting conversations with intelligent people who encouraged him to achieve the things in his life that he wanted to. And while the friendships were limited to class time, they did feel deep, and they were sometimes strengthened through authorised outside excursions and parties. Some students were even allowed to date, eventually. But while over a large proportion of his involvement, Spencer thought that the work and the group were only bringing positive things to his life, he later came to see it all as a placebo at best, leading to nothing. He also understood that a lot of it had really been fostering dependency and isolation, While members were encouraged to undermine their trust in their own perceptions. He wrote in 2019 Through the years, I witnessed a lot of psychological abuse by Sharon, and these episodes still haunt me. A couple of disturbing examples of things that Spencer recounts include Sharon exerting control over marriages and orchestrating affairs and divorces and instructing couples who already had children and became pregnant again to give their babies to other members who couldn't conceive. There's also a story of a woman Sharon told to apologise to a man who had been imprisoned for a violent break-in of her home. Apparently, it would help her to let go of the trauma from her rape and attempted murder at the hands of this stranger, if she apologised to him. As Spencer puts it, Sharon was totally lacking in empathy. Money and power were what interested her. This was a business for her, and also an outlet for her urge to bully. Former student Bette Leahy wrote about a time that Sharon asked in a meeting who had made the guacamole she was eating, and Bette was too terrified to say that it was her. When she owned up to it, Sharon said it was the best guacamole she'd ever tasted. Bette shared on her blog, "'And that was always the problem. You never knew what might happen.' You could stand up to say something totally innocuous, and all of a sudden 50 people who you thought were your dear essence friends were turning on you and ripping you to shreds. You could stand up to say something deeply emotional and troubling to you, and it would be dismissed with a wave of her hand, and you would be told to sit down and shut up. A simple question such as who made the guacamole could rip your insides to shreds. You could stand up excitedly to say you just got the job of your dreams and Sharon would tell you that it was the wrong profession for you, and you should really consider waitressing or housecleaning for a while. Spencer Schneider says that members were discouraged from seeing therapists, and I've read other accounts from people who were experiencing severe mental health issues that back this up. Members were expected to turn up to meetings on time no matter what, even if they were unwell, and on one occasion Spencer went to class even though he was experiencing extreme pain in his abdomen, then after class headed straight to ER and had to have emergency surgery to remove his gallbladder. He also says that members were told by leaders that sleep was harmful to their evolution, i.e. their ability to achieve a higher success in life, and that they needed no more than a few hours of sleep each night. In 2001, the organization was incorporated as OSG LLC. Spencer suggests that this was to do with tax avoidance. Prior to the incorporation, payments were always in cash, but after this, cash and checks were accepted. Allegedly, only the check payments were ever declared. In 2002, OSG hit the headlines again under the name it was going by at the time, Fourth Way School. Comedian and actor Rosie O'Donnell had been informed that a documentary she narrated, which was nominated for an Oscar that year, had links with a cult. The 40-minute short documentary entitled Artists and Orphans, a True Drama, follows a theatre group travelling to the country of Georgia and providing humanitarian aid to orphans there. The theatre group is headed by Sharon Gans. The media coverage came with claims that the 4th Way School was homophobic and historically didn't allow black members, and Rosie O'Donnell asked to be removed from the project. I couldn't find a way to watch the documentary from Australia, but I don't think her wish was granted. On her talk show, she said, What is my luck that of all the theatre groups in the world, the one I pick would be a cult. Her comment about the director who had gotten her involved with the project was only that she wanted to help her get out of the cult. Rick Ross told MSNBC reporter Jeanette Walls, It's ironic that this documentary, which is all about rescuing children, is associated with a group that has been accused of being destructive to families. An attorney representing the filmmakers said, The inflammatory accusation that certain people affiliated with the film are involved in an organisation that endangers the welfare of children or discriminates against gays and lesbians or families is without foundation. The $300 to $500 a month that Spencer Schneider and his fellow students were paying for classes seems like a lot to me, especially at the current exchange rate to Australian dollars, and I'm sure it does to many listeners too. But in the scope of some high-demand groups, and in relation to the affluence of most of OSG's members, it might also sound not so extortionate. However, there were additional costs for retreats, one-off events and special fundraisers. Members also contributed to building levies and other maintenance fees. Over his time in the group, Spencer estimates that he handed over more than $100,000 of his own money. And keep in mind that this is in addition to countless hours of manual labour – always presented as a benefit to the student. Eventually, after watching Sharon degrade and set others onto a woman he knew to be unfailingly kind, although there's a lot more to the story than the final straw that this presented, after 23 years Spencer had had enough. At the age of 53, he left. It took a lot, of course, to deal with the trauma resulting from his long ordeal. But then Spencer Schneider became one of the few people who wanted to go on the record under his full name to convey the reality of this most secretive organisation. Most other former members had far too much fear of retaliation to do so. Esther Friedman found herself crossing paths with the group's Boston branch under the instruction of Robert Klein in 2006. Esther wrote a book about her experiences called The Gentle Soul's Revolution, A Secret Cult, An Open Rebellion, and Lessons in Protecting and Honouring Your Gentle Soul, which she published earlier this year. She has a blog which was hugely helpful for my understanding of how Odyssey Study Group worked from a student's perspective, and I'd recommend reading it if you want to take a deeper dive. It's linked in the show notes. Esther also spoke with Rachel Bernstein on the Indoctrination podcast, and I've linked that episode in the show notes as well as Esther's book. In 2006, a woman named Lisa befriended Esther in a Whole Foods supermarket in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Esther was going through a breakup and struggling financially, working a low level job at the time in spite of her multiple degrees. Lisa nurtured the friendship with enduring patience, calling Esther repeatedly until they could get together. Then when they did, she'd listen to all of Esther's problems and opinions while never divulging very much about herself. The only number that Esther had for Lisa was a voicemail, so she always had to leave a message. Eventually, Lisa suggested that she might like to come along to meet with some more like-minded people who got together a couple of times a week for interesting conversations about life and the world. First she met with Robert, who must have given her the seal of approval before making sure Esther knew the evening gatherings were private and she shouldn't tell anyone about them. Robert and Lisa referred to the Tuesday and Thursday meetings only as school. When Esther met the man who eventually became her husband, who wasn't involved, she explained it briefly as a thing she did with a few people those nights. The couple just referred to it as thing to each other over the years of her involvement. Initially, school didn't require any monetary investment. The first five weeks were presented as an experiment, and if she liked it, she could start paying the tuition fees, which were now $350 a month. Interestingly, by this point, Gurdjieff and Uspensky were never mentioned, though Esther later realised that a core text they referred to as The Black Book was just a photocopy of Uspensky's In Search of the Miraculous, with names and locations removed with whiteout. As a new recruit, the Boston classes would run from 6.30 to 9.00 p.m.-ish. Once you'd been involved for a while, you'd join extended classes until 10 or 11.00 p.m. After classes were done, as was the case for Spencer, members were also expected to observe an hour of silence in order to, quote, seal off any leaks. Esther didn't feel that she could do this at home, so would delay her return by an extra hour, sometimes via the McDonald's drive-thru. In the lead-up to Christmas, the time commitments became much greater. Every spare minute over weekends and late into the evenings was expected to be spent on preparing for an incredibly involved Christmas party, creating dishes to be approved for the celebration, rehearsing productions to put on, and ideally sourcing props and decorations for free. Members weren't supposed to tell anyone outside of the group what this was all about, so external family and friends would have no understanding of why their loved one disappeared for much of the time before the big holiday. As Esther writes in her blog, After I left and got some perspective, I wondered whether school intentionally creates this socially engineered environment of excitement, creativity, and emotional and spiritual intimacy during the holidays to usurp that energy from what students should be sharing with family and loved ones. Esther, like all new members, was assigned a sustainer. This person was positioned as a confidant, available as a support to help keep the member focused on their aim. Aims remained a big part of the practice, and former members have said that they found this dedication to something they had fixed on achieving beneficial after their time in the group too. Esther wanted a better job, and her sustainer pushed her past her comfort zone and did help her to become less afraid of other people. But while members were told that conversations with their sustainer, which happened frequently across non-meeting days, were confidential, Esther later found out notes were taken and reported back to teachers. A teacher might be able to use some of this intel during a class discussion down the line. A former member who had experience as a sustainer wrote about the expectations of the job in a blog comment. The process of being a sustainer was highly taxing, as each sustainer might have two to five sustainees at any time and it was a big responsibility to keep tabs on them and run things the right way. This person wrote, Sustaining reports were printed and given to teachers before every class. If a younger teacher was in charge of a class on a given night, sustaining reports often came with specific instructions from Robert in Boston, from Sharon or one of her henchpeople in NYC, on what to bring up in class and what to avoid bringing up. This is how teachers created the impression of clairvoyance and supersensitivity, how they created the illusion that they could see more because they were on a higher level. It's all fraudulent, all the result of a formal and enforced program of lying and betraying confidences. They continued, sustainers themselves were kept under strict observation and control. Woe to you if you didn't call in your reports on your sustainees before a class, or if you didn't deal with a sustainee's negativity or other problems in a way that Robert liked. There were sustainer meetings outside of class times, where sustainers would compare notes and talk about techniques and help each other. In Boston, Robert would often hold court and instruct or berate as the circumstances warranted. As Spencer had experienced, Esther was told not to fraternise outside of school with other students, and didn't exchange contact information. I found this aspect especially interesting, as I haven't really seen it in other cultic organisations – It seems to have evolved after the San Francisco period, and could be related to attempts to avoid further scrutiny after the various exposés over the years. When Esther was a part of school, members often didn't know each other's jobs or even surnames. Esther suspected this requirement may have been implemented to stop people from sharing notes and critiquing contradictions. Some of the limits were lifted if you stayed on and got closer to the inner circle but those at Esther's level didn't even know that Robert Klein's Boston group answered to Sharon Ganshorn's New York City headquarters. Esther describes on her blog the four steps to recruit new members that were finally revealed to her after two years in school when she was deemed ready. This was known as part of a special third line of work that just involved making friends in order to grow the school. The steps were select your target, create the initial encounter, meet five times, and introduce to Robert. The initial meeting should be ended quickly once rapport was established, with a request for the person's phone number after such a nice chat. At one point in New York, you could invite a prospect to a yearning for meaning lecture series, which was in a public space but only by invitation, and might cover some aspect of philosophy, Pythagoras, the Renaissance, or another intriguing topic. They'd be given a card for their thoughts and contact details at the conclusion of the lecture. Once the phone number was secured, a voicemail return number was already set up, supposedly for members' safety. Once you'd made the initial contact, you were to pursue further contact until a meetup was organised, then discover as much about the other person as possible while revealing as little about yourself as possible. If they had ties to the media or law enforcement, they would not be making the cut. They should also be making a certain amount of money each year though Esther had managed to slip past this requirement herself somehow. Eventually, you could see if some of the esoteric group ideas appealed, and if so, engineer a meeting with a more senior member who could then make an assessment before introducing the prospect to Robert. The three lines of work were work on self, work for others, and work for school. Aside from recruitment, the Christmas party preparations were part of the third line, And later, this might also involve manual labor on school and teacher properties. I want to quote a passage from Esther's blog that really stuck with me, and I think is a nice illustration of how capitalism and its endless growth and endless productivity mindset can push people into the paths of alternative ideas and ways of living that can, of course, be wonderful, but can sometimes be cults. Esther was an artist and a creative at heart, which many of us know from personal experience can come into conflict with the things that society values in terms of remuneration. In reflecting on her history of drifting from job to job, Esther writes, Some may call it laziness, perhaps it was. Perhaps, though, it was fear. Perhaps it was my inability to trust and follow up on my inner sense of how to live. This inner sense doesn't compute the current dominant paradigm in society the competitive someone-wins-someone-loses model. This inner sense longs for space, solitude, and time to connect to a creative flow and manifest it. This inner sense rejects the widely held belief that humans need to fill every moment and keep busy. But my inner yearnings were juxtaposed, neutralized, and shackled by a sense of failure. An inner struggle roared on between what I wished for and that which looked possible. She continues... When one follows such a strong inner sense and manifests inner visions, one is truly free. Most people I know seek external guidance. The extent to which one seeks guidance is the extent to which one is vulnerable to cults who are happy to tell you how to live. In my case, the seeking felt endless, so the finding felt miraculous. Not too long after Esther became involved with the Boston School, Alex Horn passed away. It wasn't until years later that she even became aware of the original founder's existence. On the 30th of September 2007, the 78-year-old died of lung cancer and left his legacy entirely in the hands of his widow. In writing about the death of Alex Horn, his former college friend included in their in-memoriam note, I don't want to hurt your feelings any more than you have been hurt you people were truly led down a sad path, and I hope you recover. What happened to Alex in the 60s was what happens to many poor orphans. He discovered he loved money. There are a multitude of blogs and forum posts popping up around this time from former members who had been with the group for many years and wanted to share their experiences. A lot of posts refer to esotericfreedom.com, And Don Raskopf posted to a number of forums a legal letter on behalf of OSG leaders stating that they'd had the hosting company take the website down due to abusive, defamatory, threatening and other improper content. Not all of the content was captured on the Internet Archive and a lot of stories are likely to have been lost as a result. A number of other blogs come to the same dead end, presumably as a result of legal action as well, though some may have gone the way of many blogs in becoming defunct over the years for other reasons. In 2010, Esther Friedman found herself unemployed again, and unable to find a steady, well-paid job. School required members to work for at least 40 hours per week, so this was a problem. In classes, when she asked for help, it became a vicious cycle of berating and blame. It was definitely her fault and her personal deficits that had put her in this position. Her husband, supporting her financially and never wavering in his emotional support, started looking into Esther's mysterious study group, a part of her life that he had accepted, in spite of its impact on his wife and his relationship for coming up to five years. One day, Esther's husband asked her about Odyssey Study Group, and whether that's what her Tuesday and Thursday thing actually was. He'd done his research, and he'd noticed that Esther's monthly checks were made out to OSG. Esther had never heard of Odyssey Study Group, and had never thought to ask what the OSG on her checks stood for. But she couldn't deny the striking similarities between the things she was involved in and the stories her husband had come across. When she raised her husband's questions at the school, Esther was told that she needed to convey to her husband that he should mind his own business. How his wife was spending a huge proportion of her time, it seems to Esther, was his business. School was referred to as the source, and cutting yourself off from it would be self-defeating. But Esther asked herself, if source referred to some kind of higher power or the universe, how could it only be accessed through school? Shouldn't it be available everywhere? The choice became clear, and Esther chose her relationship. In May 2012, recounting the aftermath of her departure, Esther wrote, Within two months after leaving school, I found work that I love. I now earn a decent salary and was recently nominated and awarded a prize for my efforts. I can honestly say that my days feel joyful, meaningful and purposeful. In the age of the internet, it certainly became harder for Odyssey Study Group to keep up its former levels of secrecy and invisibility. Unsurprisingly, rather than looking into the repeated concerns of former members and wondering how they might improve things so as to cause less trauma in those who had been through the system and come out the other side, OSG instead went on the attack. Esther Friedman had some readers of her blog note that she had taken certain content down in late 2014. She wrote, Your concern is duly noted, as school appears to be monitoring this blog and adopting a tactic of harassing those around me. The Evolved Institution's legal arm sent a cease and desist letter demanding that those posts be removed. Attorney Peter Skolnick wrote on behalf of his client, Bette Leahy, in 2019, after her life had been dogged with lawsuits related to the esoteric freedom website for the previous seven years, Cults do not like it when members leave they like it even less when an AWOL member publicly criticizes the practices that expose the cult's psychic tyranny and that have prompted the escape. Bet Leahy escaped from the cult known variously to its members as Interalia, Odyssey Study Group, School, and The Work. Like others who had left, Leahy posted comments, opinions, and statements of fact about the cult leader and various cult members in internet blogs, those postings led, in fairly rapid succession, to five separate lawsuits filed against Leahy by active cult members in five separate New York counties. None of the plaintiffs was the cult leader, who followed the cult litigation playbook by remaining behind the curtain. Four of the five lawsuits were dismissed, and the fifth appeared to have been settled, with Bett unable to speak further about it. She had been a member of OSG for over 18 years and estimates that she contributed more than $246,000 to the group. In the meantime, their tactics changed again, and Esther Friedman wrote in a 2017 post, Besides being a waste of money, when the invisible world files a lawsuit, the plaintiff's claims become public record, i.e. very visible. I guess school decided to take a new tact when dealing with another blog. Instead of a hack lawyer, it hired an honest-to-god hacker who did something that suppressed the site such that it didn't show up on Google searches. That blog was Spencer Schneider's, and he managed to get it relisted. On the 22nd of January 2021, Sharon Ganshorn died of complications from COVID at the age of 85. Sharon had two children from her previous marriage, and at one point her son was running groups for the organisation including visits to one that existed for a period in Copenhagen, Denmark. But passing on the schools as a family business was not to be, and Sharon cut both her son and daughter out of her will in 2015. Spencer recorded on his blog that the will intentionally excluded both her children for reasons that are known to them, and included words of Sharon's, quote, deep regret that her daughter has portrayed her so terribly and followed in her son's footsteps. It also said that both shall not be considered her children. Interestingly, Robert Klein was not named in Sharon's will either, and it seems that even he, who had been one of the top dogs for so many years, had fallen from grace. Spencer had confirmation by August 2022 that Robert was no longer involved with OSG, though I haven't been able to unearth the circumstances that led to his ousting. A class-action lawsuit was filed in 2021 by former members Stephanie Rosenberg and Marjorie Hotchman in the Manhattan State Supreme Court, claiming that the leadership lined their pockets off the back of the hard work of the followers, who worked as personal assistants, cooks, housekeepers, drivers, and personal shoppers, as well as in painting and construction. The court filings said that all they received for their labor was trauma, emotional distress, and other injuries. In October 2022, the lawsuit was dismissed by a New York judge and a judgment was entered in favor of OSG and the other defendants. The judgment included The verified complaint fails to set forth facts sufficient to suggest the existence of an employment relationship with defendants such that they could be considered employees and employers. In December 2022, Spencer Schneider filed a lawsuit against OSG, the estate of Sharon Ganshorn and Lorraine Imlay, Minerva Taylor, and Gregory Koch. He sued them for violating and attempting to violate the United States forced labour laws and violating and attempting to violate human trafficking laws. Lorraine Imlay, Minerva Taylor, and Gregory Koch were all listed as beneficiaries in Sharon Ganshorn's Will, as well as Ken Sallers. On his website, Spencer also lists Nancy and John Rich, Tim and Una McGilcutty, Paul Nicholsberg, and Joe Travers, alongside these names as the new leaders. What happens with the organisation from this point forward seems to be in their hands. Don Raskopf, one of the few former members who posted about his experiences with Sharon Gans and spoke to the press without asking for anonymity, passed away earlier this year on the 15th of April 2023. Don had previously posted, amongst other things, Gans has stolen millions and destroyed hundreds of lives. I will join anyone who wishes to prevent further enslavement by any nonviolent means, pickets, lawsuits, publicity, civil disobedience, etc. Don signed off that post with a quote you may know from Elie Wiesel that I'll finish this episode on today. I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Thanks so much for joining me again for Season 6 of Let's Talk About Sects. As always, you can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon or AirCast Plus, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, which is linked in the show notes, and grab yourself a copy of Joe Gould's soundtrack album, Nobody Joins a Cult, which you can also stream on Spotify. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written by me, Sarah Steele, with research from Anna, Luria, and myself. It was edited and mixed by Matt Brazel with original music composed by Joe Gould. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 6 of the show. If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their range of headphones and turntables, and mics that'll make your remote working setup on point. For every episode this season, a lucky listener will win a pair of ATH SQ1TW wireless earbuds. Head to www.ltaspod.com to enter. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support with or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention at IASP.info. Catch you again next episode.